0: Section 16 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Yu. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime. By Hugo Munsterberg. Section 16. Hypnotism and Crime. Part 1. Those stubborn people who simply did not believe that such a thing as hypnotism existed have probably now slowly died out. They might just as well have refused to believe that they are mental diseases. And those of the other extreme, those who saw in the hypnotic state a mystical revelation in which superhuman powers manifested themselves, have slowly lost their ground now. They might just as well call sleep or hysteria or epilepsy a supernatural mystery. No, science understands today that the facts of hypnotism are in no way more mysterious than all the other functions in the natural life of the mind. They are narrowly related to the experiences of absorbing attention, vivid imagination, and obedient will, and, on the other side, to sleep and dreams and mental aberration. Of course, there nevertheless still remains much under-heated discussion. There is no real agreement yet as to where the limits of hypnotism lie and where it shades off into suggestion. There are various possible interpretations of the hypnotic brain process, various views also as to the special disposition for it, and even its symptoms still need careful inquiry. But everyone may agree at least in this, that hypnotism is not without serious consequences and is therefore certainly not a plaything. And secondly, that hypnotism is, for many nervous and mental disorders, a highly effective remedy when applied by the experienced physician. It has brought and will bring health, and through it, happiness to uncounted sufferers, and therefore it has come to stay. But if hypnotism is to be with us, it seems natural that the questions should be asked, often not without anxiety. What is its relation to law and court, to crime and criminal procedure? The uncanny power which man has therein over man, will over will, suggests The thought that dangerous social entanglements may threaten, or that new energies in the interest of the law may be made thereby available. The imagination has here a free field. The dime novel and, alas, the dollar and a half novel have made full use of this convenient instrument of criminal wonders. And the newspaper public reads, often, without any feeling for the difference, stories of hypnotic crime which might easily have taken place by the side of others, which are absolutely impossible. There is nowhere a standard, and it may therefore be worthwhile to take a bird's eye view of the whole field in which hypnotism and crime come really or supposedly in contact with each other. The popular imagination turns first with preference to the query whether the court may not apply hypnotism for the purpose of unveiling the hidden truth. Unsolicited letters concerning hypnotism turn up copiously in a psychologist's mail. Statistics show that it is just this proposition which disturbs the largest percentage of these amateur criminologists. They take a passionate interest in every murder case and too often reach the torturing stage of not knowing who is really guilty, even when all evidence and the verdict of the jury is in. Their scruple, they fear, could be removed only by their absolutely knowing that this or that man speaks the truth. Hypnotism has the well-known power of breaking down the resistance of the will. If the hypnotized witness were ordered To speak the full truth, he would no longer have any choice. It looks so simple and promising. From a purely psychological standpoint, such a method might be successful. It is not different in principle from the hypnotic confessions which a patient may make against his will. The other day, a student whom I was curing of the cocaine habit assured me most vehemently that he had no cocaine in his room anymore. And a few minutes later, when I had hypnotized him, he described correctly the place where he had hidden it. But the difficulty would begin with the fact, too often misunderstood, that one cannot be hypnotized by a new person for the first time against his will. A criminal who does not confess in his full senses will not yield to any hypnotizing efforts, as no outsider can bring about a new state of mind. Hypnotization cannot work on an unyielding brain as a sponge with chloroform, which is held by force to the mouth, might work. If the imagination of the subject does not help in reaching the somnambulic state, no one can inject a mesmeric fluid into his veins. And finally, even if such hypnotizing by force were possible, it is self-evident from moral and legal reasons that no civilized court ought to listen to such extorted evidence. Of course, it might be different if a wrongly accused defendant or a suspected witness wished in his own interest to be hypnotized. A woman once asked my advice in such a case. She was under a cloud of ugly suspicion. Even her own husband did not believe her protestations of innocence and I suppose her lawyer, still less. She wanted to be brought to the deepest state of hypnotism in open court till it would be evident that she had no willpower left for deceit. If she declared herself innocent on the question of the hypnotizer, the court would have to accept it. I advised her strongly not even to suggest such a theatrical performance. Technically, it is not at all possible to hypnotize everyone to such a strong degree. Further, it would be difficult to prove to the court that she did not simulate hypnotic sleep and that no secret agreement existed between the subject and her hypnotizer. But the decisive point for me was the conviction that the court ought to accept such somnambolic utterances as little as the insane speeches of a paranoiac she would be no longer in full possession of her mental energies, as it is the essence of the hypnotic state that large parts of the inner functions are inhibited. All is suppressed, which counteracts the suggestions of the hypnotizer. She thus would cease to be really herself, and the person on the witness stand would therefore not remain legally the witness who took the oath before the hypnotization. Quite different is the case when the hypnotization is required to awake in the mind the memory of facts which occurred in an earlier hypnotic sitting. It is well known, indeed, that a person awaking from hypnosis may be without any memory of the words spoken, but may remember everything, even months after, as soon as a new hypnotic state is produced. Such a sharpened dream memory may become important, and here the break of personal unity is no hindrance, as the purpose is objective information. For such an end, even an insane man may give acceptable evidence, perhaps as to the place where stolen booty is hidden. But that the court should hypnotize would in any case be a most exceptional event. What is deserving of much more attention is the case when the criminal hypnotizes. Here again, popular misunderstandings prevail. Here belongs, first of all, the absurd fear of the man with paralyzing powers. He enters the room, and when he looks on you, you are powerless. You give him your jewels and the key to your safe and he plunders you gently while you have to smile and cannot raise a hand. The English newspapers insisted that such a burglar with the hypnotic eye is the latest product of America. Punch, the London charivari, poked fun at him with a long poem on John P. Beck of 40th Street was as smart a burglar as one could meet. On one thing only would he rely, the power of his black hypnotic eye. At first, John P. burglarizes the horse of the millionaires. Finally, he comes before the jewelry, but every witness begins to talk nonsense as soon as John P. looks at him and Each who came through the witness door seemed still more mad than the man before. And at last, he looks on the judge. And the judge, too, begins to get confused and absurd and closes finally. I know the criminal. Yes, you see, the wretch before you. I am he. The man who should be in the dock is me. Arrest me, waters. Step down, John P. Now all this is, of course, extremely funny, but Punch wanted to be still funnier and therefore introduced, with a serious face, the burlesque poetry with a prose remark. It closes with the statement, Professor Munsterberg of Harvard and other learned men have set themselves to show that hypnotic power may become a most dangerous asset of the criminal. That is amusing indeed, because hardly anyone who is interested in the psychology of hypnotic states has sought and used so constantly the chance to ridicule the belief in a special hypnotic power. I know well that not a few disagree with me in this, but I must insist and have always insisted that anyone can hypnotize anyone. Of course, whoever wants to hypnotize, in fact, No one but a physician ought to do it. Must learn the technique and apply it patiently and skillfully. And certainly there are individual differences. Not everyone can be deeply hypnotized. With not a fail, the inhibition does not go further than the inability to open the eyes, while only one of four enters into strong hypnotic hallucinations. Further, not everyone is well prepared to awake that confidence which is essential and that feeling of repose which guides one over to the dreamy state. The look, the voice, the gestures, the phrases, the behavior of certain persons make them poor hypnotizers. However well they may understand the tricks. But in principle, everyone can hypnotize and can be hypnotized. Just as in principle, everyone can love and can be loved, and no special mysterious power is needed to fall in love or to awake love. Yet, while thus everyone can exert hypnotic influence, no one can do it by a mere glance, all the stories of a secret influence by which one man's will gets hold of another man's mind are remainders of the mesmeric theories of the past. We know today that everything depends upon the attention and imagination of the hypnotized and no mysterious fluid can flow over. This mystical view of unscientific superstition reached its climax in the prevalent belief that a man can exert such a secret influence from a far distance without the victim's knowledge of the source of the uncanny distortion of his mind. Thus, every heinous crime can be committed under that cover. The distant hypnotizer can inflict pain and suffering on his enemy and can misuse the innocent as instrument of his criminal schemes. Such a reappearance of the old witchcraft superstitions is especially characteristic for the borderland cases between normal and abnormal minds. An unsound intellect easily interprets the stray impulses of the mind as the intrusion of a distant adversary. In Germany, for instance, a talented writer bombarded the legislatures with his pamphlets demanding new laws for the punishment of those who produced criminal perversions through telepathic influence. The asylums are full of such ideas. The paranoiacs are always inclined to explain their inner disturbances by the newest startling agencies. Their mind is disturbed by Rogan raids or wireless telegraphy or hypnotic influence from a distance. In this country, such accusations have become familiar to the students of Christian science. In Science and Health, Mrs. Eddy wrote, In coming years, the person or mind that hates his neighbor will have no need to traverse his fields to destroy his flocks and herds. For the evil mind will do this through mesmerism, and not in propia persona, be seen committing the deed. And again, mesmerism is practiced both with and without manipulation. But the evil deed without a sign is also done by the manipulator and mental malpractitioner. The secret mental assassin stalks abroad and needs to be branded to be known in what he is doing. Or that malicious animal power seeks to kill his fellow mortals, morally and physically, and then to charge the innocent with his crimes. There ought to be no compromise. That morally ruinous doctrine of malicious animal magnetism is a complete distortion of the facts. Nothing of that kind is ever possible. Some agree that If the surprising facts of hypnotism are possible, such telepathic mesmerism might be possible too, as the influence looks similar. We might just as well propose, if the surprising fact is true that a hen can be hatched from a hen's egg, it may also be true that a hen can come from a white candy egg, as they look alike. It is exactly the essentials of hypnotism and telepathy which are dissimilar and not to be compared. The latter would be a mystery. The former is no harder to explain than any act of sense, impression, and attention. Of course, there is no reason to deny that a person may fall into a hypnotic state while the hypnotizer is at another place. The only condition is that he must have been hypnotized by him before, and that his own imagination has been captured by the thought of the absent hypnotizer. I myself have repeatedly hypnotized by telephone or even by mail. I treated, for instance, a morphinist who at first came daily to my laboratory to be hypnotized. later. It was sufficient to tell him over the telephone, take your watch out, in two minutes you will fall asleep, or to write to him, as soon as you have read this note, you will be in the hypnotic state. I thus had the malicious influence over a distance, but it was not by willpower, it was the power of his own imagination. At the time when he read my note in his suburb and fell asleep, I was not thinking of him at all. As a matter of course, such influences by correspondence would have been impossible had not repeated hypnotization in personal contact preceded. Even that may not be necessary if not complete hypnotization but only suggestive influence is in question. A few days ago, I got a letter from a certain lady whose son suffers from morphinism I have never seen either of them. She writes, My son has been impressed with the belief that your treatment is all he needs to be cured. In a dream, he said, You stood before him with the fingertips of your hands trembling and said, I have the power to influence your will. He woke, repeating, You have the power to control my will. That morning, He seemed to forget to take the morphine at the regular time and soon went down to the beach without his morphine outfit in his pocket. An unusual thing, and so forth. He himself was convinced that my willpower was working on him, while I did not even know him. The chief factor is confidence. Anyone who saw the hypnotic effects when the greatest master of hypnotism, Professor Berhain of Nancy, in France, went from bed to bed in the clinics, simply saying, sleep, sleep, felt that indeed no one else could have attained that influence, but not because he had a special power. The chief point was that the whole population about Nancy went to him with an exaggerated tension of expectancy and confidence. I remember the case of a suffering woman, whom I tried at first in vain to hypnotize. I felt that her mind was full of antagonism. I slowly found out what troubled her. She had seen so many physicians who had sent her high bills that she was afraid doctors humbug nervous patients for money. I told her that I, as a psychologist, do such work only in the interest of science, and that I, therefore, as a matter of course, have never accepted assent from any patient anywhere. Two minutes later, she was in deep hypnotic sleep. The attention and emotion of the subject is thus much more important than the power of the hypnotizer. Yet, this does not exclude the possibility that attention and emotion may be stirred up intentionally, perhaps even maliciously, without conscious knowledge of the victim. There is no especial power which produces love, and yet the coquettish smile of a willful girl may perturb the peace of any man. In this way, a hypnotizer may not wait till the subject lies down with the conscious expectation of being hypnotized. But we work slowly and systematically by means of a hundred little tricks on the imagination of a susceptible person. While both the hypnotic eye, which fascinates at the first glance, and the malicious magnetism from a distance are absurd inventions, such slow and persistent gaining of power, Over an unresisting mind is certainly possible. End of section 16.